At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You see, none of it was real. It was illusion. Your art, your science, it was all a nightmare. Now it's done, finished. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid. There is no going back. Our enemy pushes us on and on and on. And until we're strong enough or can find Earth and get help, we can never stop or turn away. People should not be afraid of their governments. It's got to shine from your standing in the mud. Choice is an illusion created between those with power and those who are not. Happy Heresies, and welcome to the Desert of the Real. This is A.M. Bytenostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult, culture, and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week, I, your host, Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining crazy diamond that should be seen and can ignite the universe with so much wonder. It's better to burn out than to fade away. This is the greatest adventure you've been waiting for in all your lifetimes. Finding out who you really are and what reality is not. As Mark Twain allegedly said, The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. There are no coincidences, Delia. Only the illusion of coincidence. This is a special episode and something to commemorate the holiday season. Whether you're drawing from the solstice magic or battling mephitic materialism. Either way, you're going to find some trenchant gnosis to brighten your divine spark. Oh boy, I've never gotten a package this big. I've always wanted to have a huge package. As I've mentioned before, many of you have asked for thematic shows. As we did back in October on Mary Magdalene. This one will deal with Hermes Trismegistos, one of the founders of Gnosticism and Hermeticism in general. I think you'll love the content, but let me know as always. Say either, yay Miguel, or go fornicate yourself Miguel and the Gorgon you rode in on. You know what I'm gonna get you next Christmas? A big wooden cross. 
So every time you feel unappreciated for all your sacrifices, you can climb on up and nail yourself to it. We'll start with an old intro on the doctrines of Hermes from yours truly. Then we'll have Jesse, or Brother Spark, founder of the Old Palm Tree Garden, discussing the history of Hermeticism. That will be followed by our seminal interview with the amazing Gary Lachman from his book, The Quest for the Historical Hermes, on the philosophical and mystic aspects of Hermeticism. We end with Aaron Leek, one of today's prominent magicians on the magical, astrological, and occult aspects of Hermeticism including some very cool exercises like astral travel. Welcome to the Revelation Superhighway. Almost three hours that covers the Alpha and Omega of Hermes and Hermeticism. Even if you've heard one or two of these, together you'll be much more enlightened. AB Prime members and patrons at Patreon get the full dope while everyone else will get Brother Spark's full interview and half of Gary's. So yes, please support if you find value in this content. Aeon Bytenostic Radio provides guests and topics you won't find anywhere else. This is the one and only resource for that Gnostic wisdom that is more important than ever in these darkening times. America doesn't bail out the losers. America was built by bailing out winners, by rigging a nation of the winners, for the winners, by the winners. Only one in a hundred's gonna get on that ark, son. And every other poor soul's gonna drown. I'm not gonna drown. I am 100% audience supported. I can always use your help. What's more, I've got some incredible projects coming in December that includes my first one-to-one video interview and some surprises that will blow your spiritual uterus away. Not to mention incredible guests and topics that are as illuminating as they are controversial. In fact, Our next show will have Nicholas Laos giving us part two of The Meaning of Being Illuminati out in a few days. So please help out with subscriptions, shekels, equipment, volunteering, or whatever you can think of. I can't do it without you, and I truly appreciate those of you who are there for me. Heck and heckity. Those of you who send me film audio clips really help, and thank you for all who do. Again, if you find value in this content, help grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. If you're already an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon, share and promote this blasphemy whenever you can. And thanks to Vance, Deej Atwood, Luthien, Joanna, Nate, Scott Smith, Peeps at the Inner Sanctum, and others who make the court Sangha of Aeon Bytenostic Radio, here at the Virtual Alexandria. But enough of my drivel. 
led us to a special show on Hermes Trismegistos and Hermeticism. You're getting closer to finding out why you were born. Yet Hermetism, as mentioned before, takes a more optimistic role borrowed from the Greek myth of Narcissus. In its cosmology, the Logos, or the mind of God, or the first thought of God, was enchanted by his reflection down in the realm of the Demiurge, who is not considered negative in the same vein as Plato's Demiurge. The Demiurge simply fashions the universe out of leftover matter from the Pleroma, or the world of ideas. I am the supreme being. I'm not entirely dim. Anyway, this loving curiosity leads the Logos down the heavens, until he is weighed down by the angels that fall in love with his divine perfection. And thus he is trapped on this world, but in a less deleterious way. All the Logos needs to do is purify himself, turn his lead into gold. Like with Gnosticism, the path of ascent is the same as the path of descent. But the ascent isn't a spiritual fistfight, but a regaining of godly knowledge. This represents the plight of all humans. There is also more alchemy and astrology than with Gnosticism, although less stern philosophy and theology. I'm prophetic, not infallible. Hermeticism is centered around the mysterious figure of Hermes Trismegidos, which we will deal with shortly. Let us say that he is a mystifying figure that is the source of all hermetic ideals. The term as above, so below is accredited to Mr. Hermes. He was accepted in medieval times because many believed that he interacted with Moses himself. Moses, this is the Lord thy God commanding you to obey my law. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you, I hear you. A deaf man could hear you. What? Nothing, don't forget it. Later though, he was repudiated, but the enlightenment came and it was just too late. Like Jesus, Buddha, and Krishna, he is more than likely a mythological character, a principle of the universe, and an indwelling savior. Why me? Because you're perfect. You have a point there. Now I'd like to read about Hermes Trismegidos and his attributed works from David Feidler's Jesus Christ, Son of God. I think you'll note the similarities between this pagan logos and the Gnostic logos. Here it be. Were you going to plagiarize the whole thing for us? Do you have any thoughts of, of your own on this matter? Or do you, is that your thing? You come into a bar, you read some obscure passage, and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own as your own idea just to impress some girls, embarrass my friend? The name Hermes Trismegidos, thrice great Hermes, is connected with those valuable writings of pagan Gnosis known as the Corpus Hermeticum. Like the introduction to the Gospel of John, the Hermetic writings orbit around the Hellenistic idea of the Solar Logos. Hence, according to one of the Hermetic tractates, the light word which emanated from mind is the Son of God. Having taken over the attributes of the ancient Egyptian divinity Thoth, Hermes Trismegidos was imagined as an ancient sage, the revealer of all arts and sciences, the inventor of the alphabet, mathematics, writing, theology, geometry, and so on. I know Kung Fu. 
The Hermetic writings were naturally attributed to him because, as Lamblicus notes, Hermes the god who presides over language was formerly very properly considered as common to all priests, and the power who presides over the true science concerning the gods is one and the same in the whole of things. Hence our ancestors dedicated the inventions of their wisdom to this deity, inscribing all their own writings with the name of Hermes. The Hermetic Sermons, or Logio, are written in dialogue from in between Hermes, the informing word, and a student. Trismegidus is in reality the Egyptian personification of the universal order, as Gnostic revealer. As one scholar notes, he was the source of all knowledge previously known only to the gods. For the Christians, Christ the Logos was the Gnostic revealer, the bestower of liberating knowledge and heavenly wisdom. The quote-unquote word manifests itself as a mediator between the eternal heavenly principles and their temporal earthly reflections. A similar function is performed by the dialogues of Hermes Trismegidos and the teachings and miracles of Christ, both of which reflect a common system of cosmological and geometrical symbolism. We are dreamers, shapers, singers, and makers. We study the mysteries of laser and circuit, crystal and scanner, holographic demons and invocations of equations. These are the tools we employ, and we know many things. Hermes Trimagidos is not only connected with the important writings of Corpus Hermeticum, but as the inventor of all arts and sciences, he is also associated with the ancient art of alchemy. One of the oldest and most profound of all alchemical documents is the so-called Emerald Tablets of Hermes Trismegidos. And this I will read to you right now. Let's go, let's go, on board, let's go. Number one, in truth certainly and without doubt, whatever is below is like that which is above, and whatever is above is like that which is below, to accomplish the miracle of one thing. Number two, just as all things proceed from one alone by meditation on one alone, so also they are born from this one thing by adaptation. Number three, its father is the sun, S-U-N, and its mother is the moon. The wind has borne it in his body. Its nurse is the earth. Number four, it is the father of every miraculous work in the whole world. Number five, its power is perfect if it is converted into earth. Number six, separated the earth from the fire and the subtle from the gross, softly and with great prudence. Number seven, it rises from earth to heaven and comes down again from heaven to earth, and thus acquires the power of the realities above and the realities below. In this way you will acquire the glory of the whole world, and all darkness will leave you. Number eight, this is the power of all powers, for it conquers everything subtle and penetrates everything solid. Number nine, thus the little world, microcosm, is created according to the prototype of the great world, the macrocosm. Number ten, from this and in this way, marvelous applications are made. Number eleven, for this reason I am called Hermes Trismegidos, for I possess the three parts of wisdom of the whole world. Number 12. Perfect is what I have said of the work of the sun. And that, my beloved true seekers, is the Emerald Tablet of Hermes, 
and I would check some of the other writings like the Poimandris, the Shepherd of Men, and other works from Hermes Trismegidos. But enough of my drivel. Let us saunter to the interview with Aaron Leach. You seek a great fortune. You three who are now in chains. You will find a fortune. Though it would not be the fortune you seek. But first, first you must travel a long and difficult road. A road fraught with peril. Mm -hmm. You shall see things. Wonderful to tell. You shall see a, a cow on the roof of a cotton house. <laughs> and oh, so many startlements. I cannot tell you how long this road shall be, but fear not the obstacles in your path. For fate has vouchsafed your reward. Though the road may wind. Yea, your hearts grow weary, still shall ye follow the way, even unto your salvation. Hermeticism is often called the nicer pagan cousin of Christian Gnosticism. Uh, is that a fair statement? And if true, they are dear to your heart, as you've mentioned before, right? Yeah, they, def they definitely are. Um, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with a little bibliography, if that's okay. Please go ahead. Okay, I just, uh, I just wanted to recommend a few books. It's a pretty standard spiel. If you're going to study Hermeticism, a primer to the thought of the ancient Hermetic is uh, Garth Fountain's The Egyptian Hermes. I also have a copy of Walter Scott's Corpus Hermeticum. I would have preferred the Knock edition, but all the translations are in French, and it's kind of a hard book to get a hold of. Um, Walter Scott's is really easy to get a hold of. You can get hold of it on, online on Amazon. Um, it's got the Greek and an English translation. I also recommend Bentley Layton's Gnostic Scriptures, which is a fantastic book for understanding Gnosticism for Gnosticism's sake. And, of course, Michael Allen Williams' Rethinking Gnosticism. I do not agree with his uh, position that Gnosticism is a busted category, but nevertheless, this book is a fantastic understanding the problems in Gnostic and Hermetic studies. So um, you asked, you know, is uh, Hermeticism the nicer pagan cousin of Christian Gnosticism? They are very dear to my heart. And, uh, well, first, have you accepted Hermes Thrice Greatest as your personal hierophant and psychopomp? Uh, sometimes I do. You know, I like to leave my <laughs> options open, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, man. Gnosticism uh -huh. and Hermeticism, my like for Hermeticism is specific. It's for its own sake. It's similarities to other systems. Um, they're similar. It's distinct from Christian Gnosticism. Hermeticism, or Hermeticism is the uh, academic term, is Gnostic in an adjectival and not a denominational sense. It seeks to inspire enlightenment and uses the term Gnosis to denote that enlightenment. I have personally uh, lapsed into hermetic devotion, uh, usually over the summertime for some reason. Um, I think it's a really powerful and effective sim symbolic language for spiritual contemplation. Uh, this summer, however, my contemplation was geared towards uh, Hebrew mysticism, because I'm taking Hebrew and Old Testament studies after all. So uh, wh wh what you want to know, man? Why don't we get down to the uh, central origins of it, uh, the history. What are the origins of Hermeticism, as far as you know? Okay. Um, the origins are essentially an Egyptian 
religiosity through the lens of Greek Platonism and Greek culture. It has its origins in post-Christian pagan religiosity of the first few centuries. Hermes Trismegistus is not the Greek god Hermes, but a synthesis of the Greek god Hermes with the Egyptian god of wisdom thought. Apparently, uh, Egyptian religiosity saw much of Hermes' domain as divine messenger to be identical to Thoth's role as prophet and luminary. So they seem to jive together. The literature shows strong similarities to Greek and Judeo-Christian writing of the time, uh, leading some scholars like Walter Scott and Garth Salden to suggest a thematic connection between the two bodies of literature, probably because of cultural mixing in Egypt, which was a, a culture of centers, I'm sure you know. For instance, uh, the use of pseudepigrapha, the corpus hermeticum, the body of uh, hermetic text that we interface with today, uses Tat, Hermes, and other related characters, similar to books like Daniel or Enoch, in being attributed to an authoritative author. Here, the authoritative author would be Hermes. It is uh, sometimes suspected Hermetism has roots in the first century BC. Uh, I, I guess this is possible that Egyptian religiosity began synthesized with Platonist ideas around them because of the Ptolemaic Greek presence in Egypt. But the corpus itself did not materialize until the Roman period, after the turn of the millennium. There's absolutely zero textual evidence of a Hermeticum or similar literature existing before the birth of Christ. In the Egyptian Hermes, page 11, Garth Fowden states that the earliest that any of the extant Hermetica can be dated is the second century. He's open to the possibility, like I am, that texts resembling the corpus were in circulation as early as the first century, but no earlier. The composition of the Hermetica took place over the first few centuries. I don't know if it can be described as having peaked in this time. Uh, the literature might have been specific to teacher-student scenarios or perhaps even the musings of the religious populace. I, I'm, I'm not sure. There aren't really any official records that I'm aware of. Um, Garth Fountain insists that the Hermetica show us a literate but not particularly educated view of Greek and Egyptian religiosity. So despite Hermetic roots in antiquity, it doesn't really appear that Hermetism flourished widely during the pagan Roman Empire. It seems to have been one of many. But whatever the Hermetica's roots in pagan antiquity, among the intelligentsia or among the common people, it achieved a great deal of respect among early Christians, and later the um, Byzantine Empire, as a source of contemplation worthy of Christian consideration. In the 4th century, uh, for example, the Christian thinker uh, Lactantius was openly a Christian hermetic, and mostly sought to reconcile hermetist and Christian doctrines. And um, nobody thought this weird. He was, you know, allowed to do this. The Armenian Church sought to Hellenize their church with hermetic writings. Did you know that? No. Wow. And in, that's quite a bombshell. And in the Armenian Church, the hermetic writings that they used seem to have been about half and half pagan authors from the past and contemporary Christian authors that were embellishing it. There were Christians in the medieval period sitting around writing hermetic texts. So ultimately, though, we, we really owe the Byzantines for the preservation of hermeticism. Um, it's in the Byzantine Empire that the corpus, as we know it, was compiled and edited. Salden says that uh, the material most compatible with Christian doctrine is what is being represented in the corpus. The hermetic corpus is, ironically, a Christian compilation. These texts were authored by pagan authors, 
but it was compiled by Christian people. You might think that, that these this group of texts that we have extant um, represents the texts that medieval Christians most thought sort of jived with their own theology. Yeah, but how exactly did it jive with their own theology? I mean, what attracted them to the hermetic uh, worldview? It, it's, it's very theological. If you've ever read uh, Corpus Hermeticum, I'm sure you have. Um, if you just turn the page, or page, if you turn to Corpus Hermeticum 13, the, the uh, themes and vocabulary are, are so similar to the Gospel of John. It's almost as if Corpus Hermeticum 13 is like a pagan version of the same Gospel. It's very cool, in my opinion, that they share similar themes like that. Um, but I bet you did not know that two later manuscripts of the corpus actually attribute the authorship of the entire corpus to the Byzantine Emperor Michael Pacellus in the 11th century. And, uh, yeah, we, that's pretty heavy stuff. Well, we know, we know it's bunk because the writings are recorded during the first few centuries. But it's kind of a revealing datum in that it shows the appeal the corpus had for Christian people. This is an elusive fact in, you know, modern times because we we don't realize that in the ancient world, hermetic texts really spoke to Christian people. So hermeticism was tolerated as a legitimate mental discipline for Christians in the Holy Roman Empire. In the Middle Ages and Renaissance, hermeticism had become so conflated with Christian thought that can effectively be described as a type of con. Christian tradition of itself. Alchemy, I'm sure you know from your young, thoroughly integrates hermetic symbols with the Christian era. It's, it's kind of counterintuitive that a pagan tradition would be so uh, zealously guarded and transmitted by Christian people. Oh, there you have it, man. That's the way it worked. Uh, Gnosis has been a hot topic among Christians for millennia. Just not the Gnostics' Gnosis, but the Hermetics' Gnosis. Basically, what happened to the Hermeticists? I mean, uh, they, were they simply absorbed into Christian thought, or what happened to them? I'm drawing a blank on that one, homeboy. I'm not sure. It's just the, the empire gradually Christianized. I don't know if you know the word pagan means hick, means royal yeah, person. Yeah. So, you know, as the country was gradually Christianized, I'm sure that Hermeticism disappeared. You know, it existed among Christians for a long time. They really jived on it. Um, as early as the 4th century, which is really cool. Jesse, the Neoplatonists and other pagans disliked, you know, the classic Christian Gnostics as much as they disliked all other Christian sects. Did the Hermeticists have a better light in the Greco-Roman world, or...? That's a hard one to answer. We, we don't have a ton of official state records regarding Hermeticists. If we have any secondary information like this, I'm not aware of it. I, I mean, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but you're going to have to ask Garth Fountain, Schlatko Plesha, John Turner. Um, if I were to wage... A wager guess. I'd say that the Hermetists were generally immune to religious persecution of pagan authorities. This theory relies on, of course, the Hermetist attitudes towards Roman state religion. Were they unwilling to burn incense to the emperor, like Jews and Christians? Did they ever establish state critical cults? It's considerations like these that would inform my response on this question. If I were to make an educated guess, I'd say they were pretty well left alone. Um, Corpus Hermeticum 18, after all, even Hermetic material, but it is a panegyric, which is like a praise text, of unnamed Roman emperors. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wager a guess and say that the Hermetists did not have a huge cultural gap between them and the state. Um, I don't know if ancient pagan compilers included this material or if later Christian compilers did, but 
Uh, perhaps it might represent less tension between Hermetic culture and the Roman state, much less tension than between Christianity and the Roman state. But remember, Miguel, just because we don't have contemporary textual evidence to confirm something's existence does not mean it did not exist. There may have been some sort of state interference with Hermetists, but they may have simply been low enough on the radar not to provoke an official written response during the time. Like a Jewish carpenter I can think of who also lacks contemporary resources. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't we just say Constantine had him all killed off and close the chapter on it? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's put it in terms of good guys and bad guys. It makes it easier on the brain. Yeah, yeah. It's always so easier just to deal with it. They were killed off. Christians were evil. Let's go on. There was, there was some car chases in there and some shit exploded. That was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Pardon my friend. Uh, you can say anything in this show. But uh, moving on, how does the hermetic cosmology and cosmogony differ from their uh, Christian brethren, the Christian Gnostics? This is a very cool question. Um, hermetism has two basic theological bodies of literature. They have essentially pantheist, panentheist view, that the world is all an extension of gradual divine emanation. And the more dualist, transcendent view, that the world is like a worm to a worm to a worm to a worm to God. Like, God is just so transcendent and so much bigger and, and more spiritual and more powerful and more good than the universe that we can't even, like, even approach this without some sort of savior figure. Um, Gareth Falden, the author of The Egyptian Hermes, and uh, one of the most important current scholars of Hermetism, suggests that they're both true in classical Hermetism. The pantheist, penentheist view is true in a local cosmic sense, emphasizing God's imminent in, imminence in creation. And the dualist materials put that in the perspective of God's absolute transcendence. So Falton thinks that they're both true. They're just two different perspectives, two tiers on the Enlightenment scale. It's also possible, I suppose, that they just represent two doctrinal schools within Hermetism. I mean, I'm willing to consider that. Um, like Gnosticism, Hermetism was not a unified doctrine. Uh, I should point out that in Gnosticism, heyday, Christianity wasn't very unified either. Gnosticism did not go up against a monolithic church that did not exist in the time that it was it was doing its thing. Um, Hermetism was sort of was a teacher centric system, and there's variations in teachings throughout the corpus. Um, Christian Gnosticism, what we refer to generally on the Palm Tree Garden as capital G Gnosticism, is more related to the second body of Hermetist doctrines, the dualist tractates in the Corpus Hermeticum. This family of texts is pretty concerned. Uh, with morality of the body as a means to purify oneself with the Gnostic theme. Though emphasized differently, the themes of both imminence and transcendence are found in both Gnosticism and Hermetism. Um, that said, there's a lot of terminological similarities with Gnosticism. Um, Hermetist texts are often interested in archons and the agency of the demiurge. I mean, it's viewed in a more Platonist, positive way than the Gnostics viewed them. And uh, Hermeticism, the Demiurge, is actually more of a benign being. He's an extension of the absolute power without any corruption or anything like that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he's a much more neutral sort of thing. Hermetist texts take a tone similar to Judeo-Christian prophetic writings. And some texts even show a sense of awareness of Judeo-Christian prophetic scripture. The similarities can be traced back to the Platonist schools, uh, found underlying both 
traditions. It can be argued that both draw two traditional synthetic pools, the Judeo-Christian on one hand and the Platonist on the other. Christian Gnosticism emphasizes the Judeo-Christian, while Hermetism emphasizes the Platonist Hellenic. Um, it might be fair, instead of calling Gnosticism and Hermetism the same tradition, to call them sister traditions or um, brother traditions. How about uh, sibling traditions? Can we go with that? Cool. <laughs> Sounds good to me. But Jesse, um, we talk about uh, you know Hermes Trismegidos uh, again, this syncretic figure who is the savior figure mm-hmm. as well. But uh, in the I believe in the Poimandris, really uh, salvation has nothing to do with any savior. Salvation is simply found on your own, isn't it? You say that, but the title of the text is the Shepherd Man. But isn't the shepherd man really God? The shepherd man uh, is a sort of divine figure. The shepherd man is a sort of divine messenger. Um, I don't think you can divorce Hermetism or Gnosticism from a saving figure. The the Gnostics and the Hermetists always rely on a salvific luminary figure to enlighten us. Um, Gnosis is never something we can achieve on our own, as is the popular mantra these days, I'm sure you're aware. Um, the Gnostic terms for these figures is teacher, master, and savior. In Hermetism, a teacher who embodies the spirit of the savior is called a hierophant. The savior figure who guides the soul to union with God is called the psychopomp. The Hermetic savior is um, Hermes Trismegistus, uh, or Hermes Thrysgros. He is the salvific psychopomp of the Hermetists. He educates his son, Tat, who appears to be human, more, uh, more or less like you and I, um, He's a uh, uh, par- partially divine, or to Asclepius, the Greek demigod and healer. A handful of other Hermetic texts make use of, interestingly enough, uh, Egyptian figures like uh, Isis and Horus. You can find that at the end of the uh, Nath edition of Kore Kosmu, which is the I people of the world. It's a pretty cool text. Yeah, and basically the story, again, in more benign terms, is man or the divine man falls into matter... Matter kind of falls in love with him, and he takes on the, uh, the you know the clothing of matter, and is suddenly, basically, again in more benign terms, trapped in this world, and therefore must unclothe himself and go back up through the heavens to the absolute power. Is that a good snapshot of uh, that's a, that's the situation we're snapshot. in? That's a pretty good snapshot. Oh, what's what's interesting about that particular snapshot is you couldn't say that it was a hermitist snapshot. You couldn't say that it was a Gnostic snapshot. Um, that's a snapshot that the um, ancient Greeks had. That's what they believed. Um, that's what Platonists believed. When Greek culture started to put away the polytheism, or the, I guess, um, old modes of polytheism, and they started to embrace more philosophical, theological approaches in the first couple centuries B.C. and the first couple centuries A.D., they... Um, they started to move towards Platonist science rather than, you know, polytheistic sort of religion. And um, that's that that description that you you uh, gave is a pretty good description of a uh, cross cultural point of view at the time. And I guess uh, their concept of gnosis is pretty much in line with Christian Gnosticism: self knowledge, discovery of one's own divinity. And then uh, what's next? Uh, rituals and the mysteries? I'm, I'm actually going to just uh, uh, cop out of this question and quote the Corpus Hermeticum, if that's all right. 
Hey, let's let's go let's go directly to the horse's let's mouth. See, let's go straight to the horse's mouth and uh, pull something right. out. Um, this is the hymn from Corpus Hermeticum 13. Uh, this is my own translation. Like I like I said earlier, Corpus Hermeticum 13 is just so cool. This hymn could almost be an appendix to the Gospel of John. It, it it's very flexible. The gnosis of God has come to us, and at its coming, ignorance has been driven out. Truth has come to us, and with it has followed the good, with life and light. No longer has there come upon us the torments of darkness. They have flown away with rushing wings. Thus has the mind been made up in us, and by its coming we have been given sight. Whoever then has by God's mercy attained to this divine birth, abandons bodily sense, he knows himself to be comprised of powers of God, and knowing, we rejoice. God has made me a new being, and I perceive things now, not bodily eyesight, but by the working of mind. Being born again, I see holy things by seeing things holy. Now that I see in mind, I see myself to be the all. I am in heaven and earth, in water and air. I am in beasts and plants. I am a babe in the womb, and one that has not yet been conceived. One that has not yet been born. I am present everywhere. This is the rebirth. Can I, can I get an amen in here? Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> that is beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, I, I think there are a lot of important similarities here. Um, like I said before, the book is comprised of the two theological camps. The Gnostics are generally more dualist than the Panentheist, Pantheist uh, camp. But the differences in emphasis do overlap between traditions. Like, um, open your Bentley Layton's Gnostic Scriptures, page, I think it's 252, pulled that out of the top of my head. It states that gospel truth resembles more of a pantheist, panentheist theology than other, more obviously, dualist Gnostic texts. Um, on our forum, the Palm Tree Garden, as I'm sure you're aware, my good friends and I have argued over our personal feelings on this matter, of the emphasis for transcendence versus immanence. We've argued at this at length. This is like a real hot topic. Is the universe a part of God? Is spirit simply present in it? Um, it's hard to resolve. It's hard to resolve with the material we have, Hermetist and Gnostic. If you want my personal take on it, I'll endorse the Jewish concept of Zimzum. I think it's a very decent type concept. It's the idea that God made a sort of like non-God space within himself by contracting his divine power out of a place oh, yeah. he made in him. Isaac Luria, yeah. Yeah, very, mm -hmm. yeah, very cool stuff. Um, that's that's my my favorite explanation of this question. Um, as well, ironically, the, the Christian compilers were very zealous to incorporate Hermitist material, and plenty were intellectually hostile to Gnosticism. But Egyptian Gnosis found a legitimate backdoor into Christianity and has been lurking in the rec room this time, eating our Cheetos and drinking all our beer. But uh, I guess another question, Jesse, is, you know, in uh, Christianity or Christian Gnosticism, we have historical figures like St. Paul, Valentinus, uh, and a whole cadre of others. Do the Hermetics have, do we have any evidence of Hermetic thinkers that might be historical? If you mean like legendary teachers like Valentinus or Basilides, unfortunately we really don't because all this stuff was written as pseudepigrapha and it's written in somebody else's name. Most of our knowledge about Hermetism comes from the Hermeticum and the secondary source, Stobius's Hermetic Fragments, which are compiled in the 6th century. Um, the Byzantine emperor Michael Pacellus might be considered an honorary Hermetic adept because of his work bringing the text into the medieval Christian world. Um, and uh, speaking of those texts, um, you wanted to know what Holy Writ 
the uh, hermeticist used. Um, it's basically the corpus hermeticum that we have today. But like I said, the corpus seems to have been compiled largely by Christian admirers. Um, Stobius, as I mentioned, also compiled, compiled a large amount of hermetic material. There's a great amount of material quoted other compilations as well. Um, most likely, a lot of material we just don't have recorded anymore. As for whether the hermetists had an authoritative body of scripture, I'm not sure, but the variations in the text show to me two schools, like we talked about. Um, the roots of the corpus seem to rely on theology and an Egyptian sense of religious experience. The cosmologies are decidedly classed, and the attitude and tone is decidedly Egyptian. What do you mean by Egyptian? If you read the introduction to, uh, to Fountain or to the uh, Walter Scott edition of the Corpus Hermeticum, we'll talk a little bit about what Egyptian religiosity was like. Egyptian religiosity was very personal. It was at the same time very congregational, because you'd bring your personal revelations to other people. But it was very personal. It's very ecstatic. Okay, very emotional, very moving. At the same time, this sort of emotional, moving, ecstatic religious experience is being balanced by very philosophical disciplines. They were very, very balanced people, in my opinion. You mentioned again the uh, Corpus Hermeticum being their holy writ. Don't we find some hermetical texts in the Nakamadi Library? We, we sure do. We find them in the Sixth Codex. This is the most diverse codex in our comedy, uh, showing texts from diverse traditions, including Platonism and Hermetism. Um, the included Hermetist texts are the Discourse on the Eighth and the Ninth, the Prayer of Thanksgiving, and an excerpt from the text of Asclepius. Um, it appears from the compilation of the codex that the codex was compiled by Prismatic, in my opinion, likely a Valentinian. The scribal note in the codex might suggest that the texts were compiled arbitrarily. There's this funny little note in there that's like, um, I know you're sick of hearing about this, and I don't know if you've received these, but I'm writing them down anyway. Just let me know if I need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> you might think they were arbitrary, arbitrary but in Chapter 11 of uh, Michael Allen Williams' Recent Gnosticism, this is a great chapter. He talks about the breakdown of each codex. Williams reiterates Jean-Pierre Mahé's position that the codex can only be read in terms of the surrounding context, the context of Christian Gnosticism. The compilers, Mahé suggests, include the material because it's complementary to Gnostic thought. The inclusion of the Asclepius passages, for instance, is likely context for the remark in the first text in the Codex, the Acts of Peter and the Twelve Apostles, where Jesus is shown to be a doctor with a medicine box, just like Asclepius. This could might show the reader that Jesus had appeared on a previous revelation disguised as a pagan figure, or it might simply be included for the other similarities to Gnostic texts. It's, it's a hard question. Um, regardless, there's been an impulse to include Hermetist material in Christian thought for a long time, and um, perhaps the Gnostics were the forerunners of this trend. Perhaps they got it going. As for the texts themselves, um, the Discourse on the Eighth and in the Ninth is the most interesting to me personally. It was included undoubtedly because of the similar views Gnostics had to the Hermetists regarding the Archons and planetary spheres. In both Gnostic and Hermetist thought, after you ascend through the seven spheres which represent the passions, you've conquered the material world and you're ready for spiritual understanding. The eighth and ninth spheres, then, are these spheres of spiritual enlightenment, as opposed to material enlightenment. Um, a prayer of thanksgiving does not look very Hermetist or Gnostic at all. It lacks a lot of the technical jargon. That would be a dead giveaway. 
but the theme of inducing divinity in oneself through mystical sense is here, and in terms, ironically close to Christian terms, terms like Father and Son, um, the Logos, etc. This prayer might have been said by both Hermetists and Gnostics, like, like Corpus Hermeticum 13, that passage I quoted. It could definitely overlap. And then um, finally, Asclepius. If, if I could uh, toot my own horn, blab on about my personal theories. I think, I think the beginning of this text, concerned with union with God as analogous to the mystery of sexual union, is included because of its parallels to Valentinian sexual theories in the um, Gospel of Philip. The, the relationship between the soul and God is like a sexual relationship. And um, you sort of are supposed to marry yourself, marry your soul to God. And in this text, we see that theme repeated um, in the Valentinian text, the Gospel of Philip. We also see this theme repeated. Um, there's an, even a ritual included in the Gospel of Philip, the bridal chamber ritual, which I'm sure you've heard about, which was something like, in order to dilute the inherent badness in sexual behavior. It's a very, you know, these people were afraid of the passions of the body, and sexual behavior was very passionate. It was very lustful, it was very material. So the Valentinians would sort of have this prayer ritual when you were, you know, having sex that you would perform to produce good children. You try to purify yourself of all the lust and try to produce a kid. Spiritual intentions. I think that uh, this passage from Asclepius has a lot of similarities with that. The rest of the text involves the prediction of the gods' desertion of Egypt, um, a description of idols and man-made gods, and then the description of Greek gods as our current rulers. The most likely reason this text was included, besides my own theories, is the prophecy predicting the end of Egyptian religion for a new religious order. I think that the Christians would totally jump at this. It says, uh, Egyptians will seem to have served the divinity in vain, and all their activity and religion will be despised. All divinity will leave Egypt and flee upward to heaven, and Egypt will be widowed. It will be abandoned by the gods. Foreigners will come into Egypt and rule it. Egypt. Moreover, Egyptians will be prohibited from worshiping God. Furthermore, they will have come into the ultimate punishment, especially whoever among them is found worshiping and honoring God. And in that day, the country that was more pious than all countries will become impious. No longer will it be full of temples. It will be full of tombs. Neither will it be full of gods. It will be full of corpses. Egypt will become like the fables. This yeah, might... That's juicy stuff for uh, Christians, Muslims, or whoever can get their hands on that. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> you can see you can see how, I mean, the, um, the ancient world was, you know, <laughs> a milieu of xenophobic cultures. <laughs> So I could see how ancient Christian Gnostics would have thought this was really here. These people are predicting their own pagan demise. <laughs> so exactly. <laughs> Jump all over that. You know, the ancient mind would have would have loved it. Um, as we both know, though, pagan culture never really died. It adapted to the new Christian paradigm and continued to exist underneath the surfaces. You know, science, philosophy. This allowed for the transmission of pagan hermetism among Christian thinkers for 2,000 years. And I, I think for this, we're uh, thankful. What about the misconception? I think we do, we, we've talked about this, that the hermetics were just these magic users who practiced religion tacitly. 
Is that a big misconception? You know, I guess brought um, about by the Renaissance well, the, and all these occultists and stuff like that. I said that there were two theological camps within the philosophical Hermetica, but there's also another genre of Hermetica called the magical Hermetica. It doesn't look from the Corpus Hermeticum that those Hermetists were all about magic. It doesn't seem like it's not a prominent theme. Sorceries, sorceries look at, you know, with disdain. Um, but there's still a body of magical Hermetica out there. And um, in the ancient world, Hermes was seen as a sort of magical god. I think it might be a different genre of Hermetica than we've been talking about in, in uh, this discussion, but it definitely is there. It definitely is there. Could you tell the listener maybe of the story of uh, how Hermeticism was revived in the Renaissance? You know, that's really not my area of expertise. Um, I, I, I'm an ancient scholar. I, I study the ancient Mediterranean. I know that it was preserved in the Byzantine Empire. It was legitimate and tolerated in the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, that's just a leapfrog into the Renaissance. You know what I mean? That's, that's like a, a channel that it, it, it followed to get us into the Renaissance. How it specifically got there, I don't really know, man. I'm going to have to go back and uh, study some Renaissance Hermetic studies before we can answer that one. And uh, But I know they were pretty uh, intelligent back in the medieval times or the Renaissance in which the, you know, some people claim that Hermes Trismegidos had actually interacted with Moses and all this oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you they know, were people able to like get to, around the church. People like to tell stories, man. That's a... Uh, that's part of human experience. Um, one point that I want to that I want to uh, make about hermetism that I think is particularly wild is that it seems to have been downplayed in the pagan atmosphere as sort of rural thing. I mean, like snooty Platonists sitting around in their universities are like looking down at hermetists as people that are kind of <laughs> kind of rural, right? Uh, Pagani, if you will. Um, and then you know, three centuries later. After this stuff is written, uh, Christians are holding up hermetism as like the height of pagan culture. Very cool. Her hermetism was far more accepted in Christian culture than it was accepted in pagan culture. And these days, it's uh, like you said, their influence is there. I mean, the, the concept as above, so below, is, uh, the Wiccans have kind of adopted it to their own, but that's hermetical thought. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. It, as above the below, ah, I think that's from Ficino in the 13th, 14th century. I'm not sure. It's not classical hermeticism, or if it's derived from classical hermeticism. But I didn't write all that down, so I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, according to Philip K. Dick, it was Hermes Trismegidos talking through a Polonus of Tyana who said it. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, well, that might be where Ficino got it, man. That's in Vallis. <laughs> well, when you, uh, when you go to school, you don't learn everything. You learn that you don't know anything. <laughs> so, you know, the more questions you ask, the more research I got to do. You are known primarily as a scholar of occultism in modern times. Uh, what exactly inspired you to write a book on such an ancient figure? 
Well, uh, I had uh, written a book called Politics and the Occult. Part of that book dealt with understanding some of the political implications of a school of contemporary uh, esoteric or uh, spiritual thought called the traditionalists. Rene Guénon and Fritjof Schuon and uh, Julius uh, Evola and, and uh, some other figures. And uh, sort of the, the, the central theme uniting these different writers and thinkers is the idea that there was some primordial tradition, some primordial knowledge or wisdom or ancient teaching that was revealed uh, to mankind in the dim, uh, dark past. This sort of um, primordial tradition, which uh, became sort of known as the perennial philosophy or the, the pristine theology, uh, it was this initial, originary, primal kind of revelation of the truth. And then over time, it um, later got uh, sort of uh, filtered down and, and sort of separated into all the different um, religions that we know, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, uh, Islam, and, and so on. But uniting all of them was the idea that there was some ancient teaching that w was the, the central one from which they all kind of came. That idea seems to have originated with this figure called uh, Hermes Trismegistos, uh, thrice great as Hermes, Hermes great, 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 uh, as uh, Tony the Tiger used to say about Frosted Flakes when I was a kid. <laughs> um, and, and so I just became very interested in this character uh, and this whole idea. And then when I started to look into it, and anyone who's you know, interested in the occult and esoter uh, esotericism and uh, all of these the, the inner tradition of the West and, uh, and all these sort of teachings, uh, they know who Hermes Trismegistus is. He's this character who's supposed to be one of the great sort of creators of magic and civilization and writing and thinking and so on. Uh, I became interested in, in, in who, who this character was, because when you look into it, you realize that for a great uh, many centuries, he was a revered figure. At certain times, he was considered to be an actual real person, other times a god, other times a, a sort of human, half-human, half-god, a magician, uh, and so on and so on. Um, but in the uh, early 1600s, it was seen or, or found out that actually uh, th there was no figure like this at all. Um, it's more or less an invention of certain uh, spiritual groups and, 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 and um, devotees in the uh, centuries of first or second centuries following Christ, uh, who invented this sort of character. And so um, you can see in, in, in sort of the history of ideas, um, suddenly um, he loses complete credibility and it be, uh, the, the hermetic teachings and the hermetic philosophy and, and the character of Hermes Trismegistus Jesus himself suddenly drops down to be uh, seen as, um, you know, mere superstition. And the whole school of hermeticism that for many years had been considered, you know, uh, prestigious and up there with Plato and Jesus and Moses and, and all of the other um, sort of big hitters of, of Western civilization at the time, he becomes a kind of uh, charlatan figure, this um, fool in, in, in some ways. And his followers are seen to be um, sort of just mere, you know, followers of superstition. And that's when the whole sort of Western esoteric tradition goes underground. So I just became fascinated with that whole sort of shift in, 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 in our thought, how you have a figure. It's, it's almost as if someone like Einstein, let's say, or Stephen Hawking, let's say, you know, the smartest man in the world, 
who you know who can um, sort of say important things about everything. It's as if 200 years from now, you know, people at that time figured out they were completely wrong, um, or or even you know decided they didn't exist, and, and suddenly their their street cred collapses and goes down to, to to nothing. So I just was fascinated with that whole kind of shift because in many ways our modern world, our modern times begin, the whole sensibility that informs modernity begins at the same time as the Hermetic teaching and this, this figure of Hermes Magistos goes into eclipse. And the question also would be, Gary, is as your book points out, Hermes was respected, revered, and at least accepted in early Christendom, in the Byzantine Empire, in medieval times. How exactly did this pagan figure become so part of, like you say, the pantheon of the other luminaries in the Christian dispensation? I mean, how did he get away with it? Well, there were, uh, you know, of uh, uh, various different um, thinkers and philosophers and theologians in in the, the the Christian tradition, going back to Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, up into uh, the Renaissance, people like Marsilio Ficino and and Pico della Mirandola uh, and others, who wanted to somehow uh, find a place for the Hermetic philosophy within uh, Christianity, within Christian philosophical thinking. And um, they also wanted to find a place for Plato. They basically wanted to find a place for the Greek philosophers and what were known at the time as the pagan philosophers. Um, when the early church or the church up into the Renaissance uh, refers to pagans, it's not talking about um, sort of people here in England that go out to the forest and and sort of. Try, you know, <laughs> well, I'm 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 not you know I'm 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 not I'm not in any way dismissing them, but it's not that kind of wicker man paganism. It's not the kind of um, nature mysticism. It's it's the Greek um, Neoplatonic philosophy that they considered pagan. And there were many within the church who were you know very intelligent uh, uh, thinkers who realized there was there was much of value in that and and people like Plato were seen to be precursors of of Christianity i mean the, the, uh, the, there was no doubt that Christianity and Christ was sort of the culmination the you know the, the final um, sort of you know part of the dialectic let's say um, but earlier than that, you have these um, pagan thinkers that uh, in abstract terms or mythological terms, we're talking about the same sorts of things. So you find thinkers in this period seeing parallels between some of the Hermetic, Platonic um, philosophies and some of the things in Christianity. And there was even a, a, a time toward, uh, in, during the Renaissance when there were um, Christian thinkers advocating the inclusion of the figure of Hermes Trismegistos within sort of the canon, the Christian canon, as, as being kind of one of the prophets, let's say, of Christ or something like that. So this is to uh, suggest how important this figure of Hermes Trismegistos was, and also how for a, a certain time in, in, in the West, in Christianity, there was a possibility when uh, what what we today see as the sort of strange woo woo weird you know world of, of <laughs> you know, the occult and mysticism and, and esotericism was actually you know being uh, promoted as as something that could be an active living part of the whole sort of Western consciousness. Yeah, and even uh, he even survived the barbed words of Augustine, didn't he? Yeah, well, Augustine uh, took argument with uh, the Hermetic philosophy and. Uh, 
Hermes Trismegistos, especially, uh, well, uh, he, he, he wasn't aware of the, the, what we know as the Corpus Hermeticum, but he did know a book called the uh, Asclepius, which was um, one of the longer her hermetic, hermetic books. And what Augustine didn't like was that uh, in the Asclepius um, is uh, sort of instructions on how to animate statues, how to sort of bring statues to life to kind of uh, the whole idea, this notion of sort of bringing the gods down, the god, the god force down and infusing it into these figures that are made and then these become animated. This was, this was something uh, that uh, Augustine thought was, you know, sort of devilish or I guess what we would consider satanic or black magic. Uh, but at the same time, um, he also uh, recognized, even by arguing against, he recognized the importance of of um, this character Hermes Trismegistus. So again, you have people like Augustine, um, Clement of Alexandria, and others within the church recognizing how important this figure is. And then you, as I said, you have in the early 1600s suddenly um, it becomes clear that well, actually he's not what everybody thought he was. Uh, it would be the equivalent of today, let's say, you know, somebody figured out that well, sort of the thing that goes on with. Uh, you know, the Da Vinci Code or, or whatever, this whole idea that, you know, what, what we thought was the case turned out not to be, and the, the, the effect that has on, you know, consciousness, um, um, in uh, the Western consciousness in general. And uh, in your research, Gary, and obviously most scholars or more, most conservative scholars would say that Hermeticism began around the second century after Christ. What do you what do you think are the origins, uh, the historical origins for Hermeticism? Well, I mean, uh, I think you know that term Hermeticism starts up around then, or maybe a little bit earlier. You know, I, I think that uh, in that sense, that that that's a correct assessment, but. The ideas, the, the knowledge, the wisdom that is being transmitted in Hermeticism, as you say, probably goes back earlier. And in the book, I speculate on, well, one of the things I, 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 I do in the book is, is, is for myself try to answer, well, what is this Egyptian wisdom? You know, you hear stories about, you know, Plato going to school in Egypt and Pythagoras before him and the whole idea that everybody back then, you know, uh, it had to be part of their sort of uh, curriculum vitae that they went to Egypt and, and, you know, and sat at the foot of the of the priests there and learned something much like today when, you know, people go, you know, backpacking off into some uh, third world country in search of the indigenous shamans or whatever, or uh, in, in the 60s and 70s uh, going out to India. Uh, to meet the gurus there. So there seemed to be something like that going on on then. So I just got myself thinking, well, what is this Egyptian wisdom that, you know, you hear so much about in 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 books of about magic and the occult and so on and esotericism. And I speculate on 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 a few different things what what um uh it, it might be. I I I draw on the work of a very uh, uh a brilliant writer named uh, uh Jeremy Nadler who um develops this notion of sort of Egyptian shamanism uh, that that uh, in the ancient uh, Egyptian uh, time, uh, the priests performed rituals or uh, participated in ceremonies that were very much uh, like what um, we we understand shaman, uh, shamanistic practices to be. Uh, and the, the, the central theme around uh, around this is the idea of awaking um, as part of the Egyptian, the, the Egyptian had a very complex notion of, 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 of the soul, of the human being. There's like, it's eight parts. But there's one in particular that uh, relates to this. is something called the Ak. And the Ak um, is this kind of immaterial, immortal, 
um, undying spiritual kind of essence that one can come to uh, awareness of uh, in life itself through certain rituals and practices. And Nadler um, presents the idea that the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which most mainstream Egyptologists see as uh, basically a uh, a funerary text, you know, something to be read over the dead body, over the mummy or, you know, whatever and so on. Uh, And Nadler says, yes, it probably was used like that, but it was also, he believes, used as a kind of meditative uh, sort of instruction book, uh, a a kind of rough guide to um, experiencing the 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 underworld, what the Egyptians called the duat, while still alive, without having to uh, actually physically die. And this, Nadler argues, is an idea that gets picked up by Plato or appears in Plato. Um, the whole notion, uh, Socrates argues, um, uh, in the Credo and um, also, you know, the, the, the uh, Apologia, the, 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 the notion that basically philosophy is a kind of discipline in which you practice dying. You know, you, you, you learn how to die. You learn how to die to the physical external world while still alive in order to awaken what the, the, the uh, Hermeticists called nous, um, th- this mind, this kind of immortal, immaterial, universal mind that we all participate in. So, I mean, looking at um, uh, some of the things that Nadler talks about, also looking at some of the work of René Shvala de Lubitsch and um, his ideas about what he calls symbolique, which was um, what he thought was happening with, with Egyptian hieroglyphics in the, in the sense that the um, the kind of figures that the hieroglyphics um, are composed of, they both, they serve two purposes. They, they, they served, um, they, they, they denoted things. They sort of pointed to things as language does, you know, this particular whatever figure meant that sort of thing. But they also evoked, they also could trigger this sort of broader consciousness that uh, Swaldo Lubitsch called the intelligence of the heart, where you have this intuitive participatory experience of what the Egyptians called the netters, this, this, the, these sort of uh, cosmic forces um, in the world. And um, so uh, looking at that, comparing those sorts of ideas with some of the things that are said in the Corpus Hermeticum, this collection of, of Hermetic writings that more than likely were written in the f- first few centuries after Christ and, were, and later resurfaced a thousand years or so later in, in the Renaissance, um, looking at some of the things that are talked about in there, I, I, I see some parallels. So the reason I'm going into this is, is, is to suggest that, yes, indeed, even though these texts were written in first, second, third century after Christ, they seem to look back to or, to, or, or they seem to be informed by a set of metaphysical psychological, esoteric ideas that go, that go much further back and seem to have an Egyptian origin. Yeah, it's very interesting, Gary, because it was uh, Valentinus who called Gnosis the knowledge of the heart, and you mentioned the Egyptians call it the intelligence of the heart. You also call Hermeticism the religion of the mind. You're basically saying that to the Hermetic, who are probably maybe the closest bridge we have to the really alien consciousness of the Egyptians, which we probably will never be able to understand and the Greeks wanted to understand, but is the way of completely, what you might say, gaining the full access of our lower and higher mind and expanding our consciousness to to its extremes, right? 
Well, yes. I mean, the sort of the central idea in, in Hermeticism is this notion of gnosis. We know gnosis is associated with another philosophical, spiritual school at the time uh, called not, uh, the Gnostics, or, or the Gnosticism. But uh, they, both, they both were very much centered on this idea, and it's a Greek word for knowledge. For the Hermeticists, what this gnosis was, was the experience of the noose, experience of this universal mind. There is uh, the, 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 the fundamental, really real thing uh, in existence is this mind, and we participate in it. It's all around us. The, the Hermeticists have this notion, this idea they call the one, the all, which when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because the only one that we could conceive of in the, the world that we live in would have to be the entire world itself. Because, you know, within, within that, that collection uh, of things, basically everything, you know, there's multiplicity, there's, all, there's, all, there's diversity, there's all different sorts of things. So for us to in any way comprehend the one, it would have to be at the same time comprehending the all. And for uh, the Hermeticists, this was, this was the basic kind of movement or direction of, of, of their spiritual practices and of their meditative um, uh, work. And um, in the book, I try to relate it to this idea that, or this, this notion that starts up in the early 20th century, cosmic consciousness. Now, we know in the 60s, you know, this, this, uh, this, this kind of phrase, cosmic consciousness, got picked up and, and used, uh, you know, for basically anything that was groovy. But in uh, the early uh, 1900s, 1901, I think, um, in fact, a fellow named Richard Morris Buck, who was a psychiatrist, psychologist in, in Canada, he wrote a book called Cosmic Consciousness. In, in which he basically argues that the human race was evolving into this wider, deeper, more profound, more expanded form of consciousness. And he, he traces throughout um, history uh, different, different examples of that, you know, the Buddha, Christ, uh, lots of other sorts of people that are in there. And he himself talks about an experience he had. Now, what struck me about this was that the way that Buck described his own experience of cosmic consciousness and the descriptions of it uh, with, with others, I mean, especially uh, people who read Buck's book. One was William James, uh, who experimented with nitrous oxide and had other sort of mystical experiences. And uh, another was P.D. Uspensky, who's best known as being, um, you know, Gurdjieff's Ger brightest student, but was a very important, insightful thinker in his own right. He, having read Buck and also having read William James and the variety of religious experience, he too experiments with nitrous oxide and has very similar experiences. And that this, 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 this sort of cosmic consciousness, the way they all describe it, it says suddenly they become aware of basically everything <laughs> going on around them in, 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 in very uh, minute and, and vivid detail. They all describe it as this kind of flood of information. It, in, in some ways, there's nothing very mystical about it. It's not a vision of something supernatural. It's not a visitation by Christ or Buddha or Krishna or anything like that. It's basically becoming aware of, of a huge amount of facts, of knowledge. Too much, actually, for them to handle at any one time. I was just struck by the way Buck, William James, Uspensky described their experiences and how it seemed to relate and parallel the way that Gnosis is described in the, the Hermetic books. And that was exciting for me because it made me feel like, well, here's these guys back in, you know, first, second, third century talking about their experiences. And then you have these modern 
accounts of the same sort of thing. And so uh, I, I'm always very thrilled when I find parallels and similar accounts uh, about uh, our inner world and our inner experiences uh, coming from different sources, because that sort of uh, reaffirms my notion that we're actually talking about something real. These, these, these different uh, from different, totally different times in history, totally different cultures and backgrounds, but the description of the experience is very similar. And uh, again, as you say, it has to do with this notion of of, of this of the sense of mind. Yeah, you give uh, plenty of really great examples. Uh, for example, Herman Hesse and uh, Aldous Huxley, and uh, it seems uh, the point is whatever you need to do to get to that state of consciousness, go ahead and do it. Uh, we really <laughs> don't know. We but we really don't know what the rituals were of the ancient Hermetics, do we? Mm -hmm. uh, no, there's some speculation. Didn't do uh, whatever Aldous Huxley did. Uh, I forgot what. Well, what he the, well, the thing is, I mean, it's probably easier for us now because you know we could go get whatever ayahuasca or mescaline or you know, I mean, Huxley you know, uh, you know took mescaline. Herman Hesse's experience is is, is different in the sense that um, he didn't. Uh, he, he's describing the experiences of of his character uh, Harry Haller in, in the novel Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf is this middle-aged intellectual who's basically given up on life, and he's he's basically the novel is him avoiding going home because the, if he goes home, he's going to slit his throat, and so he you know tries to keep <laughs> keep himself uh, out of uh, uh, away from the razor, and then but he does have uh, these moments when um, suddenly you know this this tension that he's living under and, and this kind of excruciating boredom release uh, relaxes, and he has this experience of um, he's somehow vividly aware of other times in his life the same sort of thing happens in um the remembrance of things past the the the, the huge novel by marcel proust and famously the character in the novel uh tastes a bit of you know a biscuit or cake uh, dipped in this kind of tea and it suddenly reminds him of his childhood and he's he's thrown back into this other time, and it's not as if he just sort of knows that he oh yes I was I was here at this place you know when I was ten years old he's he's there again it's it's living it's alive it's in 3D as sadly most movies are today and HD <laughs> and all that but th this relates too to this hermetic notion um, of of becoming God one of the to me one of the most tremendously thrilling passages in in, in the hermetic books is is this one in which it's usually it's either Nous, the universal mind talking to Hermes, or there's Hermes talking to uh, his disciples, his students. Um, the, 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 this is one of the early forms of the kind of teacher-student, you know, guru-chela uh, kind of uh, structure in, in these writings. But he's saying that if you want to experience Gnosis, if you want to uh, know God, you must become like God, and that that means to exist at, in all points of your life. You know, uh, at the same time, you know, be the fetus in the womb, be the you know the body rotting uh, in the grave, be the young man, be be the you know the mature man, but also be everything else. There's there's this this just tremendous sense of participating in everything. Uh, hence, this notion of cosmic consciousness, and this is something that. Hess's character, Harry Haller, and, and Proust's character in his novel, they, they both sort of experience. And again, this is interesting for me because neither Hesse or Proust are making any ostensible references to you know, her, the hermetic sort of teachings, but the, the phenomenology of the experience they're describing is, is similar, if, if not exactly the same as the kind of um, thing that the hermetic books are, are sort of 
advising you know the student to to participate and so again uh it, it this notion of religion of the mind what again what what strikes me about it as interesting and well, more than interesting is powerful and, and excites me is that it, it it is a kind of religion in the sense that there is a belief in some spiritual reality some reality beyond the material but it doesn't depend on any particular kind of rites or you know hierarchy or structure or ritual or whatever it's basically coming to understand your, your, your own mind your own the potentials of your own consciousness um, I, 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 this is this is what excites me about the Hermetic school, and it's one of the differences, let's say, between the Gnostics and the Hermeticists, who were around at the same time. Uh, they knew of each other. We know that some Hermetic texts were found among the Gnostic texts that that were discovered at Nag Hammadi uh, in the 1940s, and so we know that uh, certainly at least the, the 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 Gnostics were reading some of the Hermetic stuff as well. And one of the differences between the two is that for the Gnostics, there is this kind of um, paranoia consciousness. There's a kind of conspiracy consciousness, the whole notion of the archons, the whole notion that, you know, we live in this false world. We're trapped in this, this, this world of matter and space and time um, that's been created by this idiot, you know, demi, demiurge God who, you know, in, in the Bible is, is Yahweh and who you, William Blake referred to as Nobo Daddy and, and all of this. There's this dark kind of Philip K. Dick, you know, sense of, you know, there are the others out there who are controlling everything, like the Matrix or something. We have to escape from it. But the Hermeticists don't have that sort of paranoid sensibility about about the the cosmos. They they say yes, we we have to we are we are sort of sunk into matter, and what we need to do is 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 actually actualize our own you know full self, our own full being, our, our own consciousness, in order to master the world of of matter and space and time reality. And to take our rightful place within it, which is uh, that of the caretaker. There's this whole notion that's that's um, discussed in uh, more than one of the Hermetic books about man's place as as the the cosmic caretaker. You know, we're we're here to sort of help take care of things, to help. Similarly to a notion in in, in Kabbalah of of tikkun, the whole idea that humanity's job is to repair, you know, the mistakes in creation. You know, when when God, whoever created. The, created the everything um uh, he actually did a kind of sloppy job and you know things broke and things spilled and you know there was a mess and so our job is to kind of clean up the mess and this was something that the hermeticists shared with the, the later sort of kabbalist thinkers and there isn't the sense of wanting to escape the cosmos that you get with with the gnostics i mean the gnostics are closer to say you know the uh, sort of the existentialists or even um, some more modern, well, uh, modern esoteric schools like uh, like Gurdjieff and the Fourth Way. This notion that you know we're trapped in a prison, and we have to somehow you know find a way to burrow our way out. Very different with the Hermeticists. You do mention Gary the uh, Goldilocks effects, in uh, which we have to have uh, one foot in the spiritual world and one foot in the material world. And uh, what also like, and I often have arguments with people about the difference between gnosis and and mysticism. And you put it very well when you say that part of gnosis is having that valve, is to be able to control those uh, archetypal energies that flow through us or else well we can't go to our job we can't go to our job yeah, exactly. we can't spend yeah. time with it. we've got to keep it in control yeah well yeah there's the whole uh, yeah the notion that uh yes it's 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 great to have these sort of powerful mystical experiences and you know or you know either uh produced through spiritual practices or through 
you know, taking some uh, psychoactive substance of some form like that. But as Aldous Huxley, who you mentioned, uh, said while he was under the influence of mescaline that, um, yes, if everyone took mescaline, there'd be no wars, but there'd be no civilization either. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Huxley talks about looking over at a, a sink full of, you know, dirty dishes. And um, which gives you some idea how Huxley lived uh, and, 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 and thinking like, well, you know, uh, they're, they were beautiful. You know, and there was, and why, would you, why would you want to go over and wash them? And, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, Huxley was a, a, a fairly responsible psychedelic imbiber. But we all I'm sure we all know from experience uh, that, you know, uh, many agreed with him, like, you know, who, why go wash those dishes? So uh, in, in a very practical, you know, sim- <laughs> simple, simple way, you know, we we. The idea isn't to completely sort of be immersed in this cosmic consciousness all the time, but to draw from the experiences of, that we do get the, the knowledge that the universe is a much more fascinating, interesting, uh, living place than, than we generally you know, take it for. I mean, we, we have to get on in the world. And Huxley talks about how mind at large has to be sort of siphoned down to a, 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 a tiny kind of trickle. But it's, the, just, it's just the amount of consciousness we need in the trickle in order to you know, deal with things. We, have, we, we seem to have two forms of consciousness. One is to deal with things, which we all need to do. And the other is to appreciate things. I, I think our, our problem in the modern world is that we're very successful at dealing with things, you know, and this is why we're, you know, the most dominant species on the planet and, and so on and so on. Uh, we're able to focus our consciousness and our attention onto, you know, minute specifics and actually, you know, do things that most, as far as we can tell, most, most other sort of, you know, living creatures can't do. But the downside of that is that by that, that sort of funneling of our attention, we lose awareness and consciousness of you know the sort of rich meaning that's just you know uh sort of saturates you know the world around us and this is this is what when huxley took mescaline uh, as he you know tells us in doors of perception that's more or less what happens that part of his consciousness or that kind of consciousness that's that's focused on dealing with the world was put out of commission and suddenly you know the the richness the 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 the, the sort of meaning that's just soaking in 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 things became available to him and, and he could he could he could see it and so um but as i said you know he also he had absolutely no inclination to do anything and this is something that the william james also talks about william james on his talking about his experiences with nitrous oxide where he felt this you know complete conviction of this kind of deep metaphysical profundity that he he perceived but he also came to the realization that after spending some time in this sense of the, the absolute oneness of things, the complete total, you know, relation of everything to everything, how everything made sense, there was a sense of sort of indifferentism. Because if everything was one, you know, why do one thing rather than another? You know, why, why do this rather than that? And so he, he came, like Huxley, to the conclusion that our consciousness seems to be limited and filtered through necessarily in order for us to kind of go on and one of the things i propose in the book is this notion that well you know even though we like most of us tend to enjoy the 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 other form of consciousness you know that's why we drink wine or you know take other sorts of things to to relax or sort of dealing with consciousness in order to sink into the other mode that um we need to find some balance some way to open up you know this reducing valve enough so that we don't think 
with so much of modern culture that actually life is meaningless and pointless and you know there is no anything out there it's just sort of atoms you know floating around meaninglessly uh but not too much so that we aren't able to you know uh, actually function in the world the point i make in the book uh getting back to this notion of gnosis is i i think our job is to translate the insights that one gets in those moments of cosmic consciousness into this other form of knowledge which we use another greek word for episteme which is the knowledge that we can house in books and libraries on computers and so on and so on and it's a knowledge we can pass on to others I, I might have this incredibly ecstatic cosmic experience, but if all I can say to somebody is, oh, wow, they're not going to get a heck of a lot out of it. But if, like Huxley and others who were able to write clearly and logically about their mystical experiences, I can do that and pass that on. That's how knowledge in the broader, larger sense grows. And I think this is, you know, I, uh, to me, this is one of the important realizations i came to that the whole idea isn't it, it isn't to go plunge into cosmic consciousness and myst mystical consciousness and and at oneness and stay there it's you know dip your head in for a bit and then come back and tell us all about it and there you have it for this special thematic show you just heard the full interview with Jesse, our brother Spark, as well as the first half of our interview with Gary Lockman. Become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the full Philosopher's Stone. I wish I could just offer it all for free, but all of this takes resources even as no one is getting rich from this. Maybe a wealthy patron will come around someday only 10% of you subscribe and the rest is missing out on lead to gold gnosis you won't find anywhere else on the internet regardless I hope I have served humanity and you a fraction of how Hermes has served the meek the misfit and the mystic throughout history heresy shouldn't be this much fun but it just is. It just is. Hello and goodbye, as always. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.